So I'm Catherine Labrecht. This is the April, the first April meeting in um, in April. Gosh, that's that was brilliant. Uh, anyway, so our program tonight is on shooting spores. It's um, understand the physics of the most amazing apparatuses on Earth. And in fact, I've been very curious about this ever since it was proposed that mushrooms, fungi do shooting spores and then no explanation. So tonight I'm going to get the explanation I've always wanted on this topic. And uh, Anne, I'm turning it over to you. All right, great. Thank you so much. Can you good? Okay, good. All right. So um, last week I, I was telling Catherine earlier, last week I gave a talk to the um, a professional arborist association um, in the UK, although it turns out that people from, you know, 40 different countries go to the UK Arborist Association. And I realized that um, I would like to contextualize my talk for you. I'd like to explain why it's not only interesting to understand why spores disperse, um, why it's, it's interesting to understand how and the biomechanics of it, but it's also, I, I wanted to explain to you why I even entered in this, this adventure to begin with. So I became interested in the biomechanics of how, um, how things, how spores get around when um, I started a project in California um, that quickly encompassed the globe on on an invasive fungus so now put yourself you're looking here in the mountains of of colombia and the andes and we're gonna go there for just a little while and I, i'm gonna spend about 10 minutes probably 12 minutes talking to you about invasive mycorrhizal fungi because it's this problem of invasive mycorrhizal fungi that led me to my interest in how spores move around because how spores move around it turns out is integral to understanding how fungi move around and i'm sure that makes sense and I became intrigued by how fungi move around in, when I was confronted with this problem, um, this, this hidden world of biodiversity that's being moved across our planet that, that hardly anyone pays attention to. So let me, let me, let me talk about that. So I want to start by um, putting out there that one experiment that I think um, the, that the world has absorbed is an experiment that I call and other people call it the big plant little plant experiment. So if I tell you that plants need mycorrhizal fungi, I think probably for a lot of people who are listening, there's something there's something they know about that. They've they've heard that before. And the reason that you've heard that before is because of this kind of experiment where plants are grown both with and without mycorrhizal fungi and with different species of mycorrhizal fungi. And this kind of experiment where you grow a plant with and without mycorrhizal fungi has been done thousands, probably tens of thousands of times by now. And in general, with lots of variation and lots of interesting nuance, but in general, the result that you get if you grow plants with and without mycorrhizal fungi, you discover that plants with mycorrhizal fungi grow better. So here you're looking at a plant, Plantago lanceolata. Also, um, one common name is the Englishman's foot. It's a plant from Europe that followed um, colonists as, as they moved through North America. And if you're looking at the Plantago growing with a Colospora melia, um, which is a fungus, and this is an old name, and then you're looking at the same plant that's in a control. It's not being grown with any fungi at all. And what you can see is that the plants with the fungi grow better. And just as a, um, just in case no one has ever taught you before, the word mycorrhizal, myco means fungus, and rhizal means root. So these are fungus roots, 
um, that's what it, the name means. And these plants, they don't have roots. They have fungus roots is what they have. Um, and that's the way most plants in nature grow. They have, they have fungus roots. So this is the big plant, little plant experiment. And here's another kind of experiment, another version of the big plant, little plant experiment. But this time you're looking at oak trees and you're looking at oak trees growing with truffle fungi and without truffle fungi. And again, you can see that the plants growing with the mycorrhizal fungi are growing better. So this is, I think, something that we've all in, in, internalized. And I'm going to turn to the subject at the very end of this talk, in particular of the biofertilizers that now are available on many nursery shelves and what it is that you're buying when you're buying a, a biofertilizer, um, as it's called. But um, but in the in the meanwhile, actually, sorry, first I wanted to, to also um, just do one more bit of teaching, which is that there are two kinds of mycorrhizal fungi. There are endomycorrhizal fungi that grow inside the inside roots. And these are the kinds of fungi that would grow with grasses and ornamental plants and that kind of thing. Um, and then there are the kinds of fungi that grow with trees. And these are ectomycorrhizal fungi. And you can see the brown are the fungi. And here the brown are penetrating inside the root. Um, and so they're endomycorrhizal. And here the fungi are growing around the root. So they're ecto or outside um, mycorrhizal fungi. And these are two really different kinds of, of fungi. And they have different biogeographic distributions. So depending on where you are in the world, if you're in the in the temperate region or a tropical region, and depending on what kinds of plants you're looking at, if you're in a grassland or a boreal forest, you'll find these two really distinct types of mycorrhizal fungi growing in the forest. All right, so the big plant, little plant experiment um, has a has a long history and has taught us a lot. And, and so now we have, and you can see this reflected in movies like Fantastic Fungi, or there've been a lot of articles in the New York Times recently about mycorrhizal fungi and other places. And so we've all really absorbed this idea that mycorrhizal fungi are good. You want them, you want mycorrhizal fungi. However, there's something else going on that adds some nuance to this idea that you just want them. And so to tell you that part of the story, we actually need to go to New Zealand. So here is a photograph that I took outside of a car as I was driving around New Zealand. And what you can see is this very odd patch on the landscape ahead of ahead of the car, what is that? Well, whatever it is, you know, most things in nature don't grow as perfect squares in rows. It turns out that what that is is, is pines, um, and pines are not native to the southern hemisphere, which is, if you've never, if you didn't know that before, that's a pretty startling fact to absorb. It was for me the first time that I learned that. But pines are not native. They're not. They're not native to the southern hemisphere, but they grow really well there. And so they're planted. And that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing it's called a plantation, a forestry plantation. These trees are um, are being grown as a crop. Um, why are they being grown as a crop? Well, they're being grown as a crop and they're being cut down because we need paper products. Um, and, and lots of countries need paper products. And it turns out that this is a really good crop in various countries like you know, South Africa, New Zealand, all over the Southern hemisphere. Pines are grown and they're harvested and they're turned into, um, into toilet paper and other things. But it turns out that that when um, pines were first, when people first started thinking about pine trees as crops and started growing them in places like South Africa, they didn't grow. 
And so um, after a lot of trial and error, and I imagine a lot of experimentation, foresters figured out that if they sprinkled some soil, if they brought some soil from the native habitat of the pines and they sprinkled that soil on their baby pines that they were growing in South Africa, that then the pines would establish. So this is sort of, if you want to think about it, the earliest version of the um, big plant, little plant experiment. Um, but in this case, the experiment is being done on a global scale and it's being done by moving a chunk of biodiversity from a place where it you you know you where it's native to a place where it's not native and so thus um, a lot of ectomycorrhizal fungi which are the kinds of fungi remember we talked about those two kinds of mycorrhizal fungi um, that, thus a lot of ectomycorrhizal fungi were moved to the southern hemisphere to enable um, forestry and not surprisingly um, you know a lot of different species were introduced. So here you're looking at the bottom. Unfortunately, I think the x-axis has been cut off. Um, these are this is just an either number of introduced species. So number of introduced numbers of Amanita species introduced to the southern hemisphere, or um, the total number of introductions. So in gray is the um, number of reports I and my co-authors could find of how many times um, someone had picked up an Amanita in South Africa or in, oh, you know what, and I also, let me just gonna go back. Sorry, it's been a long day of, of teaching. And let me explain that this image that you're seeing, the continent of Africa, this is, information is taken from this wonderful paper, Mycorrhizal Inoculation and Afforestation. And this guy, uh, Mikola, talked to foresters. So he would talk to a forester in South Africa and he would say, how did you get your pines to grow? And the forester would say, well, a friend of mine in the Netherlands sent me soil from the Netherlands and I and that's what I use. Or this is a very specific documentation of soil that came from Blenheim Woods outside of Oxford in England um, that was then shipped. Um, and sometimes when the soil was shipped, it was shipped a lot. So, you know, the guy in South Africa who had soil shipped from the Netherlands subse subsequently sent it to East Africa. Um, it was moved across East Africa. So this is an oral history of how soils were moved around and thus, in essence, a, a very strong clue as to how these fungi were moved around, how the Amanitas were moved around the world, how the Lacaria or the Lactarius or find your favorite genus here, Pixillus, Suillus, Thalophora, lots of things were moved to the Southern Hemisphere in like the world's grandest big plant, little plant experiment um, to get these pines to grow in the Southern Hemisphere. This is an amazing dynamic that's happening and yet I find that not a lot of people know about it and not a lot of attention is paid to it. We pay attention to diseases. We pay attention to garlic mustard. I'm sure that half the people on this Zoom call have volunteered their time to pick garlic mustard out of some habitat somewhere. You know that garlic mustard is invasive and bad, um, but this is sort of a hidden swath of um, of, a, of a story about invasion and biodiversity and conservation that just isn't, I find it just isn't told very much. So this um, paper is open access, you can get it if you want, and there's a relational database that you can download. 
um, to understand in the database, you can look up a country, you can look up Australia or New Zealand or, you know, whatever your favorite country is, and you can see what's listed as being introduced there. So um, the circles here correspond to the number of introductions to um, Brazil, for example. And um, it's so I told you the story about pines, and that's a part of the explanation why for why these southern hemisphere countries have so many introductions. I will also say that there are other reasons that actomycorrhizal fungi were moved around the globe, and I'm not going to spend a lot of I'm not going to spend any time talking about those now. Um, but that's why, for example, there's also introductions in the United States and introductions across Europe as well. But I'm not going to dwell on that part of the story tonight. Um, but there, there's movement. Things have been happening. And not surprisingly, then, some of these introduced fungi have become invasive. And probably, um, I would say the most notorious one is the death cap, something that I've done a lot of work with, and it is now invasive in California. So when you go to certain parts of California, the San Francisco Bay Area, um, you can hardly set your foot down in the forest without coming with your foot coming without your foot coming down on a barrel of death. Um, and these, it's you know, it's serious because people do eat them and die. It's also serious because these. Um, mushrooms, these, this fungus may have ecosystem consequences, but that's hardly researched at all. So I can't tell you if they do or they don't have ecosystem or biodiversity consequences. Um, it just simply hasn't been a focus of, of a lot of research. But there are, there is, just so you know, there is such a thing as an invasive mycorrhizal fungus. It's not all about, it's not all about diseases. All right, so there's movement. I'm gonna tell you one more story. So we're back in Colombia now, um, where I've done some work um, with an amazing woman named Natalia Vargas, who came to my lab and did an internship um, because there's another story here, um, which I'll tell you. And we're in the high Andes mountains and Colombia is the southernmost distribution of oaks. And the oak that's native there is Quercus humboldtii. And you're looking across a valley at, um, at, at, at this point, mostly natural, natural forest um, of Quercus hum humboldtii, but we're very high, um, very high in the mountains. And it turns out that you go to these habitats and then this crazy thing, you see this crazy thing, this European Amanita muscaria in the middle of the Quercus humboldtii forest. It's one of the most surreal things I've ever seen. And here's another story where um, someone moved soils from somewhere to get pines to grow. In this case, the story is even weirder because the main pine that they grow is a native of Mexico. So you're talking about a, a, a tree that's native to Mexico and a fungus that's native to Europe, and they've been put together in this other habitat, which is Colombia, and they grow together and, the, and they're harvested as a crop. And originally the pines in Colombia were encouraged to grow, and by the way, Colombia is not in the Southern Hemisphere, um, true. Um, so this is a story a little bit more north than that. But the um, pines are grown, pine plantations, pine forestry started to happen in Colombia because they wanted to preserve the Quercus humboldtii forest because the, the oaks were being cut down and used um, for very for lots of things that you use wood for. And in order to prevent that, they started planting the pines and planting the fungi that would help the, the pines grow. But, but in this context, we have what I consider to be almost the, the holy grail of invasion biology. Um, because here, so what you're looking at here, green our, our plantation. So here's where the fungus, that famous fungus is found with planted trees, but blue is where it's found. The fungus has, has started a different association with a native plant. So it's started an association. Um, the fungus has started this association with Quercus humboldtii. And we have these crazy data, um, which I feel like nobody has who studies invasive species. What you're looking at in purple 
is the fungus growing with this Mexican pine. Um, and in yellow, it's the fungus growing with another non-native plant. Um, these are small forest um, patches. This, this, what you're looking at here in this context is not, uh, um, not plantation forestry on a, on a large scale. It's, for, it's timber for local, very, very local use. But here you have the Quercus humboldtii patch. And so here you're looking at the fungus. Um, you're looking at it in real time. Here it is. It's leaving the planted trees and it's now in, um, in a natural forest. Um, growing, growing with, uh, growing with the Quercus humboldtii. So um, this is an image uh, to show you Natalia because this is her work. Um, and I, I promise you, I did not Photoshop the images of these Amnita muscaria. It's it's really that startling when you're there to to see them, and they're enormous. These are mushrooms, and this is true of the death cap in California too. They're much larger in their invasive habitat than they are in their native habit, habitat. So these muscaria are like dinner plates. They're enormous. They're they're really huge. And then there's just they're these eye popping red in the middle of a habitat where you know condors fly. Um, so it's a really bizarre, it's a bizarre situation. So, so this is the work I started. This work with invasive fungi um, is what I started actually when I was a postdoc 20 years ago. Um, and it was really in this context of thinking about movement and, and invasion um, that I became intrigued by a totally different world, which has to do with how, how spores move around. And that's what I, I promised talk to you about tonight and that's what I'm going to spend the next um, chunk of time talking about is is shooting spores but here you're looking at Natalia collected these amazing data so you're looking at different countries in the hash mark you see um, um, planted forests so how much planted forest there is in other words you know how much pine if you want to think about it that way and then um, uh, sorry that's the this line is planted forest so this line here is planted forest and then what you're looking at with the hash marks in the black are numbers of, of introductions of fungi. And so what you can see is that it correlates really nicely. It's a really beautiful correlation. The more planted forest you have, the more fungi are introduced to that particular habitat. Again, I just really want you to get a sense of this um, chunk of biodiversity that's moving around, been moved around, has the potential to do damage. We don't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, meanwhile, we have this idea in our head that all mycorrhizal fungi are good, big plant, little plant, etc. And so I just really want to paint you a very complicated picture of um, biodiversity and conservation and what we think about moving mycorrhizal fungi around the world, even if they're mutualists, even if they help trees to grow. All right. So so I'm thinking about dispersal. And when I started thinking about dispersal, this is sorry, I'm having trouble moving my little zoom images around too. Um, this is really what um, most people, I would argue, still think when they think about fungal dispersal. And they think about it this way. The migration of birds and mammals in search of new sites and sources of food occurs in an orderly, coordinated way with minimum wastage of progenies. Plant pathogens, on the other hand, and you can insert fungi there if you like. Fungi, on the other hand, produce enormous numbers of spores that are passively transported, hang on to that phrase, passively transported, scattered in all directions, and finally land on non-target sites in uncongenial environments as well as on congenial hosts. So this was this is the this was the state of the art. And I, I you know, I when I started reading about this, I, this is my reaction. I was like, oh, is that all we can know? They just there's millions of them and they go everywhere willy nilly, helter skelter. There's nothing that you can 
learn, no direction, not, you know, that's it. They just go everywhere. And so this was the mindset I was in um, when I started really investigating the mechanics of dispersal. So, and before I, I, I get into the first story, and by the way, I had to make some hard choices because there, at this point, there are about five stories I can tell you that all have the same theme. And I'm gonna give you the punchline right away. There are aspects of fungal dispersal that are passive, but there are many aspects of fungal dispersal that one can reasonably argue are under the control of the fungus and through which a fungus actively manipulates its own dispersal. So I really wanna challenge this idea that fungi have no control over where their spores go. I think that's wrong. Um, I think fungi do actually have evolved remarkable mechanisms to control how their spores go, how their spores travel. And I wanna tell you two stories that that emphasize that point and hopefully teach you about that, but also then um, just to say that there are other stories I could have chosen to tell. And I'm gonna tell these stories in different ways, hoping to use the, hoping to use the power of the computer to, um, to wow you. All right, so here's the first story. And what you should know about this story is that it's not just a cute story that's relevant to one or two species. I'm telling you a story about cooperative puffing, about puffing, and why puff, puffing is cooperative. And this is a feature of thousands of species, maybe even 10,000 species, but maybe I won't stretch it and I'll just say thousands of species. Okay, so here's the thing. Um, I'm thinking about dispersal, I'm thinking about movement, I'm thinking about pass passive dispersal, I'm wondering whether that could be true. And here's one of the phenomenon that, um, that I became really intrigued by. So you're looking at a Petri dish, Inside the petri dish are the are some cup fungi. Um, they're cup fungi and they're apothecia. So they're sporocarps or fruiting structures of an ascomycete fungus nestled in the sand in this petri dish. And maybe some of you have seen this behavior actually in the field already. So here it is. So what you're looking at is a fungus that's not releasing one spore, two spores, three spores, not, not even close. It's releasing hundreds of thousands of spores, but the key is at the same time. So it's not dribbling them out. There's a very specific trigger, something, a change in environmental pressure. We don't really totally understand what the trigger is, but there's a trigger and then it shoots its spores and it shoots a lot of spores simultaneously. Why? Why in these cup fungi is spore ejection synchronized? It's timed so that all the spores go at once. Well, first of all, one interesting thing is that this puffing, which I hope maybe now some of you are remembering times that you've seen puffing in the field, um, has been known for a long time. So here's a, a lovely illustration that was copied by a guy named um, Buller. You may have heard about him before, and he's copying this illustration of puffing that dates to 1729. And here's an orange peel fungus um, puffing, just another image of it. And this is a beautiful image um, that was uh, printed, engraved and printed by a guy named Bouillard that also is, is showing you the same phenomenon. So the phenomenon has been, has been people have noticed this for a long time that, that puffing is a thing. And actually a lot of people who teach about fungi bring in these kinds of fungi into the lab and then you know do cruel things to their undergraduates like you know make make the fungus puff into their ear and everyone gets freaked out and it's really fun and funny um anyway puffing is something that's easy to see and even in 1976 um people like Harthill and underhill noted that 
that in still air, if in other words, if you bring it into the lab and you keep it really still and you, you know, keep the environment really still as much as you can, that, that those, the, there's a jet. Um, so there's, there's a very specific form to how the thousands of spores are synchronously released. And so it turns out, so Buller even thought about this, although he didn't prove it, but he thought somehow um, that these spores were moving the air, spores or projectiles in his language, discharged from the assay, bombard the air and set it in motion. And it turns out that that instinct was exactly correct. So here's what's going on. And here you're looking at just a, a model um, of the spores on the right hand side and then on the left the air flows or the wind if you like on the on the left hand side so the first spores that go set the air in motion and then the ones that go after the first spores are pulled into that wind that's been created by the first spores. It's sort of like bicycle riders in a peloton where the bicycle riders at the back of the pack are drafting in the, um, in the, um, in the winds and the motions of the air that are, are set in place by the first riders. So that's actually exactly what it's like. So this is what the spores are doing. So in still air, what's happening is that these spores are creating their own wind. They are not relying passively on the surrounding environment to carry their spores into the atmosphere or away from the ground. They are creating their own wind to do that, to, to move those spores around. Um, and by doing that, they enhance the range of, the, they enhance the reach of their spores. So a, a spore that ejected all by itself would reach so high, not very high, but the jet you can see carries you much further. And this is a cooperative, this is a cooperative behavior um, because it turns out that the first spores to go are sacrificed. They don't go as far if you make the assumption that that dispersing up here is better than simply landing back on your parent fungus, which I think is a reasonable assumption. If you make that assumption, then the ones who are going the furthest are the ones who shoot at the end. All right, so my collaborators in this um, are Agnese Seminara and Marcus Roper and Helene Dillard. And together, um, we made a movie and I'm going to show you that movie and I'm, it has no sound. So I'm going to talk over the movie a little bit. So I hope you have popcorn. It, 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 it shows it's all the whiz bang that I promise in terms of like the most amazing movies ever. So when we did this work um, and we um, submitted it for publication, I pride myself on being someone who does experiments. But when we submitted this paper, the review that we got was, well, this is all very theoretical and can you do an experiment to prove it? So we had a madcap adventure driving up to Cornell's agricultural station um, where a woman named Helene Dillard was very kind and shared, uh, shared with us um, the fruit bodies of a fungus that were just in the right stage to puff. We brought them back to our lab. Um, we made them puff, but the key thing is we took a very powerful laser and we um, shot that laser as a single, we um, shot that laser through the puffing event so that we could in we could see the individual trajectories of spores and measure them. So that was a key part of our proof. So let me play this for you. Okay, so what you're looking at here, here's the sporocarp, here's the puffer. 
here's the puff, here's the thing that's about to puff, and you're watching just a few spores be ejected, and you're about to see the puffing event, all those particles are individual spores. So here, um, then later we use some really sophisticated imaging software to track the velocity of individual spores, and long story short, um, confirm our theory um, as far as how the, isn't that swirl amazing? You start to see these amazing vortices in the, in the pattern of the spores. But here's a puffing event, here's how it happens, um, here's something you can measure. Um, it was all kind of fantastic. I just, the idea that you can visualize individual spores um, was rather fantastic. And the, the, the field work behind this was also really hectic, um, involving some, yeah, anyway. Um, so, okay, so there's the, there's the puffing event. Um, and to illustrate this idea even more, I'm gonna share, I'm gonna share this movie which we put together and entered in a physics competition and it did not win. Um, but I still think it's a great movie. I think the physicists weren't quite used to thinking about fungi yet. None of us are at these places anymore. <laughs> so sclerotinia is the fungus we were working with because, um, you know, for very various reasons, and it does happen to be a plant pathogen locally in Wisconsin, um, potatoes. Okay, so here's an image of a of a basidiomycete, and this is a story that I'm not talking about, but these are these amazing spores that um, go quite fast, but don't go very far because they only go one at a time. So here's what you just saw, a different version of the sclerotinia puffing event. That's what we imaged. So this is really important. In addition to creating their own wind, by puffing, they can move around. Imagine you're at the bottom of a sunflower seed and you need to get around a sunflower leaf that's fallen on you. Well, puffing enables you to do that. A single spore that launched would get stuck on that glass side, but, uh, but the puff enables some spores to move around it. So this is just a fancy way to say we mapped the wind so we could understand something about the velocities of spores. And this is why we call it cooperation because a lot of the spores don't get don't, you know, don't get all the way. And the different colors have to do with different speeds. I'm gonna let you all watch this and then I'm gonna back it up and explain it again. This is a dung fungus. I think it's from rabbit dung. Okay, I hope that what you saw in that video, I'm gonna try to back it up, is that, and let me just play it again. Initially, it's this one um, area in the center of the sporocarp here where the spores are launched. And then as time goes by, that circle gets ever wider. Well, okay, so there's two things here. For those of you who are deep into the anatomy of sporocarps, there's a structure called a paraphyses, which is, um, these are just fluid-filled sacs. And we think that the um, traveling wave that's moving across the surface of this sporocarp that that wave is coordinated by these fluid-filled sacs that are inside the sporocarp that as a spore releases, they, they sense that. They sense that there's now empty space around them because a, a spore has launched. So they, they start to move around and that moving around inside the body, inside the sporocarp is what helps the next set of spores and the next set of spores and the next set of spores to go. And basically, it turns out that if that this cooperative behavior, it's always a question, how do you maintain cooperation? If it's good to go last, why aren't you that little spore that hangs on and goes last? 
But it turns out that the way that this is organized, at least in this one species where we have data, is that you have to go when the wave, see how it's going bigger and bigger and bigger? You have to go when the wave hits you. If you're over here and you go, you're not in the jet because the wave hasn't reached you yet. The, the jet is here. This is where the jet is forming. If you're hanging on and you're in the middle, if you're right here and you're a single spore and you've waited, then you're not in, you're not in the jet um, because the jet, the strongest parts of the jet are now around here where the traveling wave. So this is a mechanism to maybe, we think, it's a mechanism to enforce cooperation. In other words, you have to go as a spore. You have to go when the traveling wave hits you. You can't go before, you, you can't go after. I'm not sure that all species work this way for various reasons, but, um, but I think that that's um, true for this species at least. This is a different way of saying what I just said again. And so we simulated this to, this is how we discovered that you have to go with the wave. You have to go when the wave hits you. You have to get on the train when it's there. Because you're seeing the, the you're, you're, as you see this, this, um, base shift from right to left. You're seeing the wave move. Let me back it up a little bit just so that you can see that. Watch the bottom here and watch it, watch it move. See, it moves left. So now if you're over here, especially it's too late. If you go, if you wait, you've, you're done. You've, you've missed, you've missed your, you've missed your train. You've missed your wave. All right. So I'm going to stop that chair and say that that's the, um, that's the first story about cooperative puffing that, and again, um, just to remind you of, of, of where we've come from, we started talking about, um, sorry, let me, let me just open this talking in Zoom. Um, we started talking about um, fungi being moved across the world. Some of them become invasive. We're interested in this idea of, of sort of one of the reasons, how do they become invasive? How do their spores move around? Um, and then when I was trying to look at that, I'm, I'm thinking about this idea that they're passively dispersed. And now here's one story that that suggests that maybe the movement isn't isn't so isn't so passive. And this is just a, a fancy figure that wraps it all up with a with a bow. Um, and I, I, and actually, really, I put this in so the citation. This is also open access, so if you, if you wanted to see it, you could. And even though there's, it's pretty theory heavy. There's still you you know. Um, there's a lot in there that anyone that can pull out, I hope. All right. So that's cooperative puffing. And then there were a few other stories along the way, um, having to do again with this idea of how passive is, is, uh, how passive are things. And then, but we were, but, but Agnese and I were really stuck, um, still in the puffing story for this reason, because when we went to go pick up these, um, these fruiting bodies from the Cornell Agricultural Station in New York, the woman, the lab technician who took care of them looked at us and said, oh, well, but they puff when they're thunderstorms. They know when the thunderstorms are coming. I mean, I try, you know, that's a really remarkable statement. So according to her, something about thunderstorms in upstate New York was worse these were that the something about the thunderstorms was sensed by these um fruit bodies inside chambers inside petri dishes inside a building and the and then and when the thunderstorm approached then she would lose a lot of her experimental units because they would all puff 
So, so we kicked that around actually for a decade or so, trying to think about what that might mean and you know what that was what that was all about, and that led us to this other very different story, which is actually much more recent. We just published it six months ago. All right, so this is where we came from, puffing. Um, and this is uh, just a, a movie of an individual Ascus shooting at spores. This was an attempt to use high-speed video to capture this phenomenon, which failed because even though we put these assay in water and then we put them in a solution of glycerol, we could never slow the movement down enough to capture it, even using high-speed cameras that film at 70,000 frames per second. So that's an unsolved problem. Um, that even really, really fancy techniques so far haven't solved. And here's Agnese and her daughter, Agatha. That's from a Zoom call that we had the other day. And I'm leaving her name and affiliation up there so you can understand um, that she um, is a great collaborator in this work. Okay. Thinking about the puffing work, thinking about thunderstorms, um, we, we started to link that to a different observation. All right. So um, it, it, it turns out that this the observation um, that Anne had in Ithaca, New York, is an observation that's made in a, in a different way by other people all across the world. Uh, and this is one example of it. This is data from 1951, um, where someone measured the concentration of spores uh, at regular intervals and discovered that there was a diurnal pattern. And so some spores are, are some species, or in this case, many species apparently, seem to be releasing their spores at specific times of day. In other words, you, you, and you can see it in the, in the peaks. Um, that's an interesting idea that also suggests that something about spore release is under control of the fungus. Um, and some spores, so here is the same author of different publications, some spores seem to be shooting at midday, some species seem to be shooting at midday, and some species seem to be shooting in the early morning. So it's not as if fungi are a monolithic entity and they're all doing the same thing. There seems to be some pattern as to shooting earlier or shooting late. Huh, okay, that is, um, doesn't suggest pacificity, pa it doesn't suggest too much passiveness. It suggests an evolved strategy so that your spores are around at some times of day and not at other times of day. Um, if it were helter-skelter willy-nilly, then you wouldn't see this kind of pattern. Or you might see the same pattern for all species of fungi being driven by exactly the same environmental conditions. We hypothesize that fungi are releasing their spores at certain times that maximize that survival and flight. And maybe a story that I could tell you that I can't prove to you is that the sclerotinia are puffing as thunderstorms approach because we know thunderstorms are times of intense vertical updrafts. So if, if the aim as a species is to maximize distance traveled by puffing and releasing spores as thunderstorms approach, a species might have evolved to maximize the the um, the the continental range dispersal of their spores because they're being caught up in thunderstorms that then can carry their spores very far distances. So um, so it may be that fungi are releasing spores at particular times to maximize survival and flight. And uh, you know another uh, an aspect of this that I think is also underappreciated is that 
it's not just how far a spore goes that matters. It matters that the spore is alive when it lands. So there's a lot of data, for example, that captures spores from various parts of the atmosphere and says, oh, we found all these spores. That's fine. Um, but in order to understand whether that's relevant, um, the missing piece of it is you captured the spore. Is it alive? Um, because it may be that there are quite a lot of spores that you're capturing that are simply dead and then it doesn't matter. It's certainly not successful dispersal if it's dead. All right, so to test this hypothesis, we actually took on an intensive modeling project. Um, and the modeling project, um, Agnesa used to study clouds. So she's basically using a, a lot of algorithms that are used to study cloud formation, um, to study spore travel. Spores, you can think about it in a way, do, do form sort of clouds. And, and you can't model um, an individual spore and an individual spore's trajectory at this level. Um, because individual spores are going to be chaotic, right? Spore one is going to behave differently from spore 50, from spore 100, from spore 100,000. So at this level, it's, that's not a useful approach. Instead, you want to understand the statistical distribution of the million spores that you're studying and where do you know 700,000 of them go or behave as opposed to 20. Um, so that's what we're doing. And I'm not going to dwell on the um, on what we did other than to say that we took advantage of a, a model that's put out there by NOAA called a high split model. Um, and a high split model models the trajectory of hundreds of thousands of particles. They don't, you know, the high split doesn't care if your particle is a spore or a dust mite or whatever it is, but it models um, the movement of particles. You have to feed into the model certain things like the shape of the spore and um, and how heavy it is, et cetera, certain sort of you know physical parameters. Um, but then the high split model takes real weather data. So um, and then it tells you how far particles are going to go. So what you're looking at here is a map of the continental United States, and we picked these ten locations. This one's in Mexico. This one's in Wisconsin, of course. Um, and we said, okay, if you release a hundred thousand spores at, from from you know this farm in Wisconsin on May 10th, 1998 at two in the morning or um, eight in the evening, how far do those spores go on average? What's the statistical distribution of those spores? So this took 18 months of really intense, intense um, simulating in order to, and I'm going to, I'm not going to talk about it, but I'll give you the citation in case you want to read it, read about it. But I'm basically going to boil it down to a few messages for you, which I think are particularly interesting. So we're modeling the movement of spores. It turns out that spores that are released at noon, based on these high split models, the movement of particles in real weather, travel for days. That's okay unless you're a highland clear spore, for example, because if you're a highland clear spore and you are released at noon and your survival is just a few hours, then, then mostly you're dead. So it turns out that this parameter, six hours, um, it was a, a lifetime an average lifetime of a spore that we pulled out of the literature for a particular kind of species. And so if you're a short-lived spore, um, you should not shoot your spores in the middle of the day because um, most of the spores will be dead before they reach the back of the ground. So in other words, we're, we're wrapping up this observation that you find certain species spores um, at certain times of day, we're connecting it back to the, to the fact that that probably has to do with travel time. So shortlist spores should release at night. They should not release in the middle of the day. If they, in fact, if they want to maximize 
distance traveled, they should probably shoot in the early evening um, and then travel for that whole night because as soon as the UV, as soon as the sun comes up, as soon as the UV light hits, they're dead. So shorts, short-lived spores must travel at night. Um, but long-lived spores, so here we're thinking about a spore whose average lifetime is something like two weeks. Long-lived spores that survive most conditions, those can release whenever they want. Um, they so they they might have reasons for you know for for um, releasing in at certain times, for example, during thunderstorms. Um, but they don't have they don't face that same kind of constraint. Um, so longlived spores can be released at any time of the day, and that's basically where this work is now. Um, and I want to show you from the paper, which, as I said, is available in um if you if you google it you'll find it so this is from from the paper and this is a table that we hope um that teaches a lot of people that these observations are rampant in the literature so so here's an amanita muscaria where someone um, recorded it happens to be a variety alba when it releases and it releases at night a caprinus and this is a study from that was in Havana, Cuba, and it may be that you know a Caprinus in Cuba does not behave the same as a Caprinus in Michigan. We don't know, um, but here's a very specific time from five in the morning to six in the morning. That's when these Caprinus release their spores. Um, it's a little crazy, um, but there you are. So here are um, data on longevity. So I didn't. I wanted to show you that there's some really interesting papers on tropical fungi. So here are two papers, one from Brazil and one from Australia um, on tropical fungi. They didn't go any further than tropical fungi. Um, but in both cases, the a very strong statement is made that, that tropical fungi shoot their spores at night. Um, so none of this sounds passive to me, by the way. None of this sounds like a fungus that has no control over how its spores are dispersed. This observation about nocturnal shooting was also made by um, Gregory Gilbert, who's a professor at Santa Cruz in a, in a different kind of a paper. And in that paper, he made a really funny statement that, that mycologists who work in the tropics should also be nocturnal if they want to study fungi and really understand what's going on. So that, uh, I don't know, that just sticks in my head as a particularly funny um, statement. So um, anyway, so there's lots of data on, uh, you know, there's lots of data that to suggest that lots and lots of different species are actually shooting their spores at particular times of day. It's not completely random. And then there's also lots of data on longevity, back to the statement that short spores should shoot at night. What hasn't been done by us or anyone else, but is clearly the next logical step and should be done, is to tie these data together with the theory and really start to tell get some data and tell some stories about what's happening um, for particular species in terms of their trajectories and their control over over where they go. All right, so now we're back to the traditional PowerPoint. Um, safer ground for me. All right. So all of this, then, I hope has challenged for you this this um, you know this idea of of pacificity, um, and I want to make the statement that fungi coordinate and manipulate their spore dispersal um, to a remarkable degree, and to a degree that I think has not been appreciated 
um, you know, perhaps until now. And I'm showing you this image. It's just another, I don't have a paper about it, but um, these are yeasts that, that are ballistosporic. And the really interesting thing about these yeasts is that if, if I, I, again, a, a story, um, if this spore lands in a habitat that's unfavorable, then instead of growing, it creates another spore shooting structure. So by shooting its spores short distances across the petri dish or across the habitat, it can actually move itself. It's a sort of a really strange kind of locomotion um, that can move a fungus across a, a petri dish. And that's a story that I, I haven't, that I have not explored yet. Okay, well, we do have some questions in the chat box that if people want to add to it, they're welcome. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, the first one is from Michael Murphy. Do we know if the spore puffing is caused by how much remaining energy is in the given substrate? Mm, that's it. Yeah. Okay. So the, um, and I didn't really talk about that. So, so the spore in the spore puffing, the spore that's leaving is being shot out of an ascus. And the way to think about an ascus is it's sort of like a water balloon. Um, so think about a really taut water balloon with some projectiles inside it. In this case, they're spores. Um, something often it's something at the tip of the water balloon, like a little cap opens up very suddenly and all the water squirts out. And that's the um, that's the energy that's shooting the spore. So um, so puffing is driven by that energy. And and yeah, how much you know the number of assay that are in there, the number of water balloons that are in there is is what you need to know in order to understand the energy. I hope that answers your question. Okay. Um, well, Michael Murphy, once more, is this traveling wave generated by changes? in the microclimate on the surface mushroom, or is it an internal mechanism like self-generated electrical pulse? It's an internal mechanism, but it's not electricity. It's an internal mechanism that has to do with sensing the water pressure in that structure. And that's where we think these, these elements inside um, the sporocarps called paraphyses are the sensing element. So when an ascus goes, the paraphyses around it um, which are also fluid-filled sacs, sense the change in water pressure as the ascus deflates. The ascus deflates, there's no more water in it, the paraphyses start moving around, um, that um, information is then transmitted across the, um, across the, the surface of the spore carp. Now, perhaps you've answered, but I'll, I'll read, uh, William Carroll said, what initiates the puffing? Yeah, I can't answer that. I mean- Oh, okay. Greg's, Greg's right. It's potentially changes in the air pressure. He's absolutely right. In the field, you can trigger it by blowing on it and it'll go. Is it? But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, that's a reasonable idea, but I just can't answer that with great precision. Uh, Maxine does. What makes the wave start? Yep. That's the same. That's that. I have the same answer. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't, I can't, it's a really great question. I, I wish I could give you a better answer, but, but we, I just don't know. Yeah. Okay. So Finn said, in regards to the invasive mycorrhizals, oh, well, I, I, I'm sorry. I can't hear Greg talk about that. <laughs> Greg, Greg you, you could mute yourself, I think. <laughs> if you can't, I will, uh, I will help you. Okay. Hold on. Um, I mean, I'd love to know, Greg, if you've noticed exotic or introduced species at the... Of, of Greg, I made you a co-host, so I think you can now jump in. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I got it, yeah. Sorry, so, all that security. Yeah, so I, 
<laughs> you haven't, but I mean, partially because most of the things we plant in a formal garden are arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, and we've never done the DNA test to know whether we get different, you know, the different AMF fungi. So, you know, we don't have that many exotic ectomycorrhizal, you know, plants that are planted, so we don't see that that escape. We, you know, so I brought up the non-mycorrhizal thing, like the golden oyster, which is uh, now growing, we find it all over the place. And so that seems to be expanding. And um, and the other thing is I mentioned a lot of things. There, there could be other things, but if you had a little brown mushroom, has it moved in? Do we know? You know, it has to be something that's fairly distinctive uh, to know whether it actually has moved into the system. So, so I don't have any more data, but, but those great ones that you had mentioned, you know, the the, the ones that have jumped from pine onto nothophagus or pine onto something very distinctive. Yeah. So Michael Murphy asks, he's, he's our question generator today. Uh, do these diurnal shooting patterns exist even within the lab when the fungi are not exposed to external environmental pressures? that's a really great question that would be a really fun undergraduate experiment actually that'd be a really great experiment to do as i said that work that i showed you is really new to us um and we haven't there's a lot of ways that we could follow up on that that we haven't but i love that idea um i mean this i think the sclerotinia seem to react to thunderstorms even when they're inside which is really weird to me like i don't i can't imagine that i don't i don't know what's going on there that mechanism must be really interesting um, but yeah, that'd be a fun experiment to do. Greg, did you want to say anything? Cause you sort of responded to him. Uh, I don't have anything except when I was looking up, but I couldn't find anything more on it. I had remembered seeing it not that long ago. Zombie ants have very distinctive, um, timing of that too. So the fungi on zombie ants, so it's across a whole bunch of different taxa that they've looked to see that. So the zombie ants, it looked like the spores are released at night, but the spore carbs come up during noon. Uh, so, you know, it's just kind of fascinating to see the timing of that. But I don't have anything more. Okay. Susan Kaiser, our president, said, when inoculating with nearby soil, should it be from the same species of tree? Um, yes. And I want to be really careful now to say that this work that we're doing on whole transplants is an experiment at the moment. Um, and it is not a management recommendation. Um, however, if you try something like that, I would like to hear about it and like like to hear what happens. And if you were going to try something like that, you don't need much soil. You know, um, you know, a uh, quarter cup, half a cup around the base of whatever it is that you're planting, and it should be from very nearby. And yeah, from the same species would be ideal. Um, but as I said, if you do that, let me know. I want to hear about it. I gave this talk to the um, UK Arbor when I gave it to the UK Arborist Association. I found out that there are uh, the more I do this, the more interesting it is. There are a lot of people who are already doing these kinds of things um, for various reasons. So I got a lot of stories. Um, and if you do that and you discover something interesting, not only let me know, but consider sharing that story somehow. Um, you know, even potentially in in your local newsletter. One of the things that we discovered when we were doing, when Elza and Ben and I were doing the new, this paper on, on introductions and numbers of introductions is that was some of our best information it was from local mycology clubs and people who noticed something. I'm re also really intrigued by 
Matthew Nelson's comment about lichens on planted trees. Um, I, I can easily imagine that that's something that's happening, that someone's planting a tree and there are lichens on it or moving a boulder and there are lichens on it. And, and so all of a sudden the lichen is in a, a new place. And if you observe that, if you have time and energy, you know, I would really encourage you to write that down and put it somewhere and it doesn't anywhere. Um, anywhere now, you know, it's easy to get, um, it's easy to, to get newsletters and, and, and read things. Um, it's not as difficult as it used to be is what I'm trying to say. First off, great, great talk, Anne. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Um, but yeah, so Todd Widholm, who's also at the Field Museum, I know he and I have seen some some various taxa on um, planted species. We saw some different Parmeliaceae that I can remember. We were both like, this looks very strange to us. And then we've seen, or at least I've seen some, I think Todd probably has too, some Xanthoria parietina kind of around. Uh, I've seen it like in downtown Chicago on planted trees by the library, for instance. Um, and that's one that generally isn't in the Midwest. Um, and there is some speculate. I think it was more speculation. I don't know if there's really any great evidence, but there is a fissia of some sort. I can't remember if it's milligrana or not, but I think John Thompson, who is used to be at, well, was at Wisconsin, he and his monograph on there, I think had talked about one species potentially going from the Eastern US to somewhere in California on a planted tree, but that was very, you know, anecdotal, I guess. I would urge it would make sense, I think. Yeah, I mean, I would urge you these things that you're seeing, you know, downtown, etc. I would urge you to write those down in any way, shape or form and put them somewhere anywhere. Um, One of the things when we were working with the death cat, Amanita Originally, and trying to figure out if it was invasive in California is we went to all of Rolf Singer's old handwritten notes. I think a lot of them are actually at the Field Museum. And, and that, you know, his observations turned out to be a really critical piece of evidence. And, and you know, thank God he wrote it down. Um, even, I, you know, I think sometimes we're so, I don't know, sometimes we're so hung up on, on, on fancy papers, I suppose. But, um, but, but writing down those natural history observations anywhere where they're recorded, I, I would, I don't know, I would really urge you to think about doing that. I think it'd be great because that's the start. You know, at the at the beginning, people don't, people sort of notice, but don't really know what's going on, and don't think, don't, aren't sure if it's important. I guess we don't know if it's important, but but it could be important later. Uh, Michael Murphy asked, recently a paper from the University of Miami came out about Basidiomycetes spores that said they potentially seed rain clouds. Is this another possible method for long-range spore transport? I think that's a potential mechanism to come back down. So that's another aspect of spore dispersal. I, I would argue that it's it's um, it's not as maybe thought about it as it could be. Um, so it's all well and good to get up to the atmosphere, and that's really been my focus and the focus of a lot of people. But you have to get back down. How do you get back down? And and uh, seeding a rain cloud seems like it would be a really good way to get back down. Um, although many spores are coated with hydrophobins, so they they repel water, which is really interesting. So another you know friend of mine thinks that they don't they don't at least for many species they don't seed rain clouds but they actually are buffeted between water um, but it's the it's the movement of the water coming down and the again the wind that's in motion that buffets these spores from from raindrop to raindrop and and goes and goes down um, makes the spore go down so yeah but another critical question is whether that spore is viable um, because it, it could be that that it's not 
and that it's just has is dead. It's a particle. It can still see the rain cloud, um, but it's dead. And there might be reasons to think that it is dead because, as I said, a lot of spores have hydrophobins around it. So maybe it has to be dead and the hydrophobins have to wash off somehow or decay or degrade. Um, yeah, all of this, I'm just throwing ideas out there. I don't have any proof for, for any of that. Uh, Kathleen Neiman said, are the night cycle ejections in response to darkness or simply timing, temperature, moisture changes? Would a tropical night puffing fungi eject in a fully lit laboratory environment? Those are all great questions that I, I can't really answer for you. I mean, the whole idea of ejecting at night is really interesting to me. Um, but I don't, you know, I've seen it myself, actually, when I took a, I took a bunch of students to the tropics and um, because I was intrigued by this, I, I, I convinced some of the undergrads to do a, a project on, on dispersal out of a Ganoderma. Um, and in that habitat, it was very clearly nocturnal. Uh, Patrick Leacock said, uh, when we collect a guild mushrooms, might that trigger spore release? Since we can usually get a good spore print right after collecting or a day or later in the day. Okay, I'm going to answer that question, but just to say that, again, this is an idea. I don't really know. I think when you're collecting a gilled mushroom, um, you're not really triggering the spore release because in a gilled mushroom, the spore release, oh, I, you know, in terms of timing, well, often when I make a spore print, I put it on a piece of paper and cover it and leave it for 24 hours. But you're saying that you can get a good spore print right after collecting. I don't know. Um, that would be also a fun experiment to do, to see... Maybe if you if you had a species and you had ten mushrooms and you felt comfortable collecting all ten and and see whether you consistently get a good spore print at four o'clock in the afternoon or something like that or maybe something about collecting it and cutting the stem off and putting a cap over it changes all the dynamics I don't know that seems like it'd be a really fun thing to play around with actually so something about environmental triggers for that so Rolf Singer always said that and he started when we were collecting at high elevations. And then if you bring them down to the lower elevation, you usually couldn't get a spore drop. So we actually started setting up the spore print in the high elevation. Again, could be something to do with air pressure or something like that. And so uh, he'd actually take, um, you know, and set the spore print up in the field. So by the time we got down, it was already starting to drop spores. That's so interesting. Where, where was this, Greg? It was like in Colombia and Costa Rica and any, any place that you had a significant elevational difference. That's so cool. And these were mushrooms that you were? These were mushrooms, yeah. That's really interesting. See, I feel like there's all this hidden wisdom. Yeah. You could write it all down. Maybe someone could tie it all together. Hmm. So Ada Vascos asked, in Colombia, Tatiana San Juan has data, cordyceps and ophiocordyceps. Um, sporulated at night when ants are more active. That's really interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, again, back to this, you know, back to challenging this idea of, uh, I mean, I, of course, there must be some elements of fungal dispersal that are passive, but I just think that there's a lot of, there's been a lot of um, natural selection, and, and I think fungi have evolved ways to cleverly manipulate their own fate much more than yeah so william carroll asks so adding mushroom compost to the soil in my vegetable garden is potentially not a good idea can you william can you tell me what you mean by mushroom compost i'm going to go ahead and start talking um i think anything that's composted should be pretty sterile 
like a really good compost is has gotten hot and it's decomposed and you know it's compost um it's not living material so i'm going to assume that that what you're asking about is a is a like a compost like a garden compost yeah, it's just bags of stuff that we get from wherever that says mushroom compost on it as soil additive. I think that should be compost and it should be okay, but it could be useful to read the label and see. Usually what I find is that when they're active mycorrhizal fungi in a product, they're advertising that heavily. Got it. So, and that's what I, that, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I, you saw what I, what I said. So I, I guess I'm just saying, think about whether that's a thing that you want to do. Okay. Uh, yeah, Susan, I saw that's a really important question. So the the that puff ball does not puff. I know it does puff, but in the the puffing that I was talking about is not is is it's very confusing because the word puffing is used multiple times. But is that puffing is a different behavior um, than the puffing of of the giant puff ball? The giant puff ball, that round snowball thing, um, the, it, a little operculum opens up on top, or a little like um, you know hole. Um, and then that puffball, when when it's smushed or when rain hits it or when there's some mechanical disturbance, um, the spores release. But it's not cooperative. It's not making a jet or anything like that. There's something external. There's an extrinsic factor um, that's smushing, smushing the puffball, and the spores come out for that. For that reason. I think we have finished with all of our questions. I just have one real oh, quick one, great. if I could. Just curiosity, and for the map that uh, I'm not, no, I'm there. Um, from the map that you showed of the, the uh, uh, extension of the Ammonita muscari in Colombia from the whatever, it looked like it was following a road, was it? I, I'm asking because in Tasmania, uh, Teresa Lavelle has shown from this Ammonita muscaria from one mother tree followed the road where the loggers had and you know it kind of just five minutes it got the spores got caught up in the in the stream of the of the logging trucks and spread all along the road and then dispersed from there that's really interesting i i um that's really interesting i would enjoy reading that um i sorry i'm going back to the thing because it looked like there's a road or something there along that path I don't know. yeah there is a road there yeah, I can't. That's a really good question. I can't answer it. I don't. I don't think that that I would know. Um, I, I in in Colombia, um, when Natalia talks with the foresters, they tell her that it that's that something that they do is they they actively pick the Amanita muscaria sporocarps um, and and kind of you know tear them up and move them from forest to forest. So that explains the yeah, which the, we're in conversation about that. Um, but that doesn't explain the leap to oak because they're not moving the sporocarps into the oak. They're just moving them. They know that it works. They know that it works, and it's and they're so huge and they're so easy to find that they're they just pick them and move them. Um, yeah. Uh, Patrick Leacock said, or could mushroom pickers follow the road with mushrooms in baskets? Maybe, but I don't think in, in this habitat, in this context, the, the, um, the, the locals know that that's not a, no one's picking those Amanita muscaria. Everyone knows that that's some weird thing that's appeared recently and yeah, no one's doing anything with them, but I agree in other contexts that could definitely be something to think about. Yeah. 
you know, this was really interesting and we do want to have you back in two years when you have concluded your study. Great. I would, I would love, I mean, I think that's a, it's a complicated conversation for, I think for various reasons, but, um, but it seems a really important conversation to have. I actually do have one question for you. You know, this movement of soils all around the, the in these different regions, you know, I mean, if you wanted to import a tree, you know, a sapling with the soil, you know, the USDA here would stop you. Yeah. So oh. this is historical, right? So this was before before that. I mean, now if I if I wanted to ship a tin of soil from Madison, Wisconsin to the UK or vice versa, that's not going to happen. Um, not without a lot of work. But but in when pines were first being planted, so Mikola published that paper in 1970. So those soils were being moved, you know, probably in the 50s, 60s, you know, around that time period. And it was also the continent of Africa. So probably there were fewer, you know, people keeping track of people moving soils. I agree with you that that's not a thing that would happen now. Not in the cool. Cool. Well, thank you again very much. We look forward to meeting you again. Yeah. Sorry, can I just bring up something really sure. quickly about that? Because one of the issues that's going on now, you probably read about it, there's this major initiative to plant trees all over the world for carbon, for you know, uh, climate change mitigation. And so two things are happening. One is they're not necessarily planting the right trees in the right place. And secondly, if they are bringing things around, this would be another place that invasive mycorrhizal fungi could be spread around in the hopes of that. So there's a lot of conversation now that's starting to be trying to um, engage these conservation groups that are pushing for planting trees to plant the right trees in the right place at the right time. So just thought that there is a massive tree planting uh, uh, exercise going on now. And so it's possible that could um, be another issue. It feels like an urgent issue to me right now, actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, again, thank you very, very much. It was nice meeting you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Take care, you guys. Thank you. Thank you.